Well, good morning, and welcome to those of you who are joining us upstairs in the O1. We're glad that you're with us this morning. What we're going to be doing uh, today is looking at Galatians chapter 2. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I did what everyone does, and that is I went to Siri to ask the key question of the text that I was going to do. So I said, Siri, how ought I to live my life? And with my southern accent, Siri said back, how hot is your life, right? And so I was like, okay, that's not the best way to do it. So let's, let's try it again. So Siri, how should I be living my life? She says, Ben, you seem to be okay. It's like, okay, well, thanks. That's helpful. That's not what I'm going for, though. So let's try it again one more time. I asked the question a different way. And this time she said, you are great, Ben. So Siri's clearly been to the school of self-esteem, wants her customers to be happy, think well of her. And so she's applauding me in this way. So I didn't get the answer that I was looking for from Siri, so I went to Google, and then I was reading down through some of the top hits that are there in Google, and I came across a magazine called Rife Magazine. It's aimed at uh, young uh, British young people, and Rife Magazine, they have a title of one of the articles that shows up right at the top of the search that, that I punched in, and it says, how should I live my life? And the answer to how should I live my life is they said, don't look around today. One of the best ways to answer this question is to look backwards. And so, in particular, they're looking backwards to a philosopher named Aristotle, and Aristotle asked this exact same question. And he's saying, what is the highest good of life? What is, what, is, what is the good life? How is it that we can enter into the good life? How can we prescribe a life for everyone? And so, as Aristotle answers this question, he begins to unpack things like uh, virtue and vice, and says that we should be driving down the middle of virtue and vice. So we can't be too kind because people, people will take advantage of us, and we can't be cruel because that doesn't work either. And so we need to find this middle ground, this median ground in which we should be driving our lives toward. And so this article goes on to explain how we, in our modern culture and society, can live our lives this way. Well, when we get to Galatians chapter 2, it's actually the same question in some ways that the Apostle Paul is asking. He's asking, how is it that we should be living our lives? And so the Apostle Paul is going to answer this here. So I invite you uh, to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Mike covered the second half of this last week, actually. Galatians 2 through the middle of Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And you can see it on the screen as well. This is what the text says. It says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And in this verse, Galatians 2.20, you've got it on a coffee cup maybe, or crocheted into something, or stitched somewhere. I have been crucified in Christ, and I no longer live But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in the final verse of the chapter, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul is coming at this passage of Scripture, and the verses that preceded are when 
Paul actually comes after one of the other apostles, and he comes to Peter, and he accuses Peter of how Peter should not be living his life. Peter has has actually uh, practiced hypocrisy. He used to uh, be okay with eating with the Gentiles and, and practicing his Christian faith in these certain ways. But all of a sudden now that these Jewish leaders have come in and these religious leaders have come in, Peter gets scared. And he's afraid. He's not fitting into the sort of social elite class. And he backs off of those things and he says, oh, I'm not going to eat this way anymore. And Paul's furious about this and he's angry. And so he comes at him and says, you cannot enter back into this old way of life. That is not where you're going to find life. You're going to find life being set free by the truth and the goodness of the gospel. Another way to ask this question, another way to reframe it is how should we live our life, is in your life, who is driving the car, right? Who has the steering wheel? Who, who is really directing where you go? Because you can put a lot of good things in the car, a lot of people inside of the car, but really there's only one person that's driving it. And God here is saying that he should be the driver. But oftentimes for us, some of the easy things we do is we take the good things in our life and we put them in the driver's seat where they're not supposed to belong. So something like fitness or food become really the driving force of who we are and where we're going in our life. Or maybe we put financial finances or financial security in that place. It gets the driver's seat and all of a sudden, oh, what? how did I end up here? Oh, it's because the primary thing in my life was financial security or friends and family. Again, these are great things, gifts of God. But when we put them into the driver's seat, they drive us in the wrong direction. What Paul is saying the driver's seat of your life should be is that you should live your life by faith. He repeats this phrase over and over. He says, you should live your life by faith. And it's not some generic faith. It's not faith for faith's sake or just live by faith. It's actually faith with a a pretty concrete content. That faith is in a, not an idea, not a philosophy, not a political party, but it's in a person the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to come at this question from three different ways. How in the world are we to live a life of faith? So first I want to talk about how do you, what's the very first step into a life of faith? Then I want to talk about the basis of our life of faith. And then finally, I want to talk about the results of our life of faith. So the first step into a life of faith is actually seen in Galatians 2.20 there. Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So Paul says the first step into faith is actually death. The first step into a life of faith is losing the life that you have. Now, let me be very clear. Uh, I'm not talking about, when we're talking about death here, I'm not talking about death in terms of how to grieve the loss of a loved one. The Bible talks a lot about that, but not in this passage. It's actually talking about our own death. How do we deal with our own uh, death that's coming? And how do we think about that? And so Paul here says that he has already experienced death, if you will. He has been crucified with Christ, and he no longer lives. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, you are what you eat. Have you heard this phrase before? Well, I was looking into it this week, and um, there there was a philosopher in the 1800s named Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach says he's a materialistic philosopher. He doesn't like Christianity. He's attacking Christianity. He he wants everybody to understand that the world and the reality of the world is physical, right? So it is concrete. Things that are metaphysical, that are bigger than physical, do not exist. They're not real. People have made those things up. The only things that are true about your life are the physical things about your life. So he's a materialistic philosopher. And so he says, you are what you eat. And that's how he's trying to get his point across there. Well, there's a recent theologian that picks up on on this phrase, and he says, actually, Feuerbach would hate this that I'm saying this about him, but he got it right. 
Actually, in a lot of ways, we truly are what we eat. And here's why. We are what we eat, and this is the phrase that, that uh, he says. He said, man must take the world into his body and transform it into himself, into flesh and blood. He is what he eats, and the whole world is presented as one all-embracing banqueting table for man. Jesus talks about the same thing. He says that there must be death before life comes. When he says there's a, um, a piece of grain, it, what must it do to live? It must fall to the ground and die before it can reproduce fruit. There's death that precedes life. Now, I know some of you have already checked out, right? The second you heard 18th century philosophy, Feuerbach, you're out with me. So you can come back in real quick, right? I'm going to try to make this a little bit easier. After church today, you're probably going to go do something, and that is you're going to eat. Okay, some of you are going to stop at a pizza joint on the way home. You're going to get brunch. You're going to get something. Somebody in this room today is going to eat a bacon cheeseburger. Okay, and for that bacon cheeseburger to be on your plate, there was a grain of wheat that used to live and it died so that bread could be made. There was a cow that was walking around somewhere and he had to be killed in order for that burger patty to be on your plate, right? There was a little, as I tell my kids sometimes, there was a little pig named Wilbur that was running around in the backyard And for you to have that bacon, Wilbert is no longer living, right? It's actually really true. God has sort of built into everyday experiences life that death must must precede us living. We cannot find life in and of ourselves. We must embrace a sense of death in order for us to continue to live. There's a plausibility structure built into our everyday experiences so that when God comes in and says that you must die— in order to find life, that we can believe that because we actually experience it on a regular basis. One of the things that the Christian life uh, does and that the church does is we do something called baptism. And when we baptize people, um, you can picture right, going out to a lake and there's somebody walking into the water and the, 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 whoever it is that's doing the baptism will take the person and they'll put them underneath the water. And they're in a place, it looks like, where there's no oxygen, where life does not exist. And they'll say something like this. Every church tradition says it different, but it'll say something like this. They'll say that you are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. You are experiencing a death of yourself, and you are coming up out of there with a new life. As, as Paul is telling us how we live, I am crucified with Christ. The first step into the Christian faith, and maybe it's a step that some of you haven't taken, the first step into Christian faith is actually to embrace our own death. And not our death, but the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if we do that, if we take that step, then our life of faith has to be based on something. It has, it has to have a foundation. And so secondly, I want to look at what is the foundation or the basis of our faith. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look back at verse 16 that I read here in Galatians. I'm going backwards just a little bit to see this. And in, in verse 16, there's, there's a word that shows up three different times. And you'll hear it here. And Paul writes, he says, We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So, when I say the word justification, what do you think of? When I say the word justify, what comes to your mind? 
Some of you are probably thinking about the Derby and the Preakness winner, Justify, right? He just won horse race. He's in line for the Triple Crown. This is fantastic. There's another horse that gets to do that. We're not talking about the horse today. We're going to be talking about this word uh, that is all throughout the Bible, actually. Justify, justification. There's all these, there's different arrangements of it. It's used in the New Testament. There's like over a hundred usage of it as a noun. It, as an adjective, it's used like 80 plus times. As a verb, it's used 39 times. It's used as an adverb. You see it in the Old Testament. Moses writes about it and says the judges will justly or they will justify people that they are judging in those different places. And so this is a word that's all over the Bible, but at the same time, it's not as familiar to us. We don't think about it. We don't use this word. Probably nobody in here this morning was driving to church and said, how am I justified before God this morning? What is my status of justification, right? It's just not necessarily common in our vocabulary. So it's going to take us just a little while to unpack this. And if, by the way, if I'm not as clear as I can be on this, just send me an email. My email is mwoodruff at cclf.org. So if you have any question, M is in Mike, Woodruff, CCLF, just send me an email. I will answer uh, this week, and within 10 minutes, I will respond back. So there are two uh, main sort of uh, connotations to this word justify what Paul's talking about here. And the first one is a legal sense or a forensic sense. And it's just simply if a judge is standing there, he's going to either declare someone condemned or guilty. He's going to declare them innocent or justified, right? That, that's one of the senses. And the second sense that would have been um, understood is, is uh, looking at justification as something that's coming at the end of life. As, as the end of our lives, God is going to reckon he's going to make all things right. And when he makes all things right, he is going to declare some things good and right. And he's going to declare some things bad and evil. And he is going to bring about a punishment on that. So I want to look at both aspects of justification, which is the basis of our life in faith. And here's how I want to do that. Is um, in the early 1920s, there was a guy that, that uh, or the early 1900s, I mean, there was a guy that, that came on a boat across the United States of America. And it was a guy named Charles Ponzi. And Charles Ponzi lost all the money that he had gambling on this ship across. And it's hard to find the details about this, but uh, he's thought to have lost everything he had. But when he lands in America, he still says that even though he has no money in his pocket, he has millions of dollars in his dreams. And so what he does is he finally finds something that he can turn a little bit of a profit on in this, uh, this mail catalog. And so he begins selling it and makes a little bit of money. And as he does, he realizes that he, if he can get some people to invest in this, and he promises them this great return on the, their investment, that he can actually make more money. So what he does is he says, I will give you 50% return on your investment to me within 45 days. So 45 days from now, I'll give you 50% return. At the time in the early 1900s, 5% was about as high as return you could get on any investment. And so what he does, as you know, is he takes uh, these investments and he pays them off from people that are investing later on. So the first people who are investing, they're getting their money back in 45 days. People begin to find out, oh my goodness, you can make a ton of money with this Charles Ponzi guy. He's figured something out. So he's getting all these investments. And over the course of just a short amount of time, Charles Ponzi is beginning to receive something like $250,000 worth of money every day. Now, for this day and age, he ends up, he ends up accruing at least $15 million, which is $200 plus million if you're translating out to where we are today. And Ponzi, what he does is ultimately, as you know, he gets caught. And now he's left with all of these investments from people that, he is, that the judge has to make a verdict on whether this guy, what he has to do with all this money that he's taken. And so I want you to imagine for just a second that you're one of the investors, Okay. You have given this Charles Ponzi guy, some of your friends have made a lot of money off of him already. So now you've given him some of your money. Maybe you've given him your inheritance. You, like you want to increase your wealth. And so you've invested with this guy. And then all of a sudden you find out that it's a total scheme. 
And he's, he has wasted all the money uh, that you've given him, and you've lost your investment. He's in the court scene. He's in the judge, and the judge comes up to Ponzi, and he says, Mr. Ponzi, I know that you've done these things, but you are free. There is no punishment. There is no jail time. You are free to walk out of here today. How would you be feeling if you're in that courtroom? You would be looking at the judge and saying, what in the world? Like, this is unjust. How can you do that? This man deserves punishment, right? He deserves to pay for what he's done. He's, he's accused of 86 account, accounts of fraud. He should pay for that, right? That's what we did. Now, ultimately in the story, Ponzi does. He goes to jail. He loses everything he has, of course, and he goes to jail for a long period of time. But for many of us, when we think about God as the judge, what we are doing is we're actually asking God to treat us the way we don't want Mr. Ponzi to be treated. We're asking God to look at us with all of our guilt, with all the things that we've done to other people, all the thoughts that we've had, the secret thoughts, the lies, all the ways we have rebelled against God, all the brokenness, and we're, looking, we're asking God to look at us and to say, you're forgiven. Walk free. Go free. It's okay. But if God does that to us, then is he still just? Is he still right, right? It's actually a problem in the Christian life. How in the world is it that we serve a God who can look at us and say that you're free if he's going to stand for what's right? How is he not going to execute some sort of justice on criminals, on the enemies that are there? It's a problem within uh, the Christian faith. And we talk about justification as the basis. Well, either if we're justified, then God is not just. It, It becomes an issue. So, let me tell you one of the ways that this is not solved. Um, this, is, this doesn't end up well, right? And this is, uh, there's, a, there's a professor named Dr. Packer, and Dr. Packer explains the story. And the way that he begins to explain it is he explains justification this way. He says, I want you to think about um, the old war, the Trojan War. And as you're thinking about the Trojan War, I want you to remember here that Princess Helen is carried off to Troy, right? Uh, Prince Paris takes her and the Greeks are mad, and the general, Agamemnon, Agamemnon gets all the soldiers on the sea, and he's going to go rescue Helen from over there. And as they're sailing across the sea, what happens? The winds begin to blow against their boat, and they're not able to make their way, and so they're stuck there. And so in this ancient time, in a pagan culture, in a religion, they would have figured out how it is that they appease the wrath of the god of the sea. So how is it we're going to get the God of the sea to change the wind so that we can move forward and go in this direction? And so what, they, what Agamemnon does is the general is he sends back uh, to get his daughter, and he has his daughter sacrificed. He slaughters his own child in order to appease uh, the gods of the sea so that their boat can move forward. And as the story goes, um, as the tale goes, the legend goes, is that actually works. And the gods remove their hand uh, from being angry at the Greek soldiers, and they allow them to go across and to fight this war in Troy. And so what is understood there and what it's thinking is that, oh, the gods of the world have the ability to make us happy in one sense and the ability to make us sad or life miserable in the other sense. And so what we have to do in our life is we have to figure out how it is that we get the gods on our side. And so to do that, you have to sacrifice something to these gods. And it was assumed that the greater the sacrifice, the more the gods would respond. And the greatest sacrifice was seen as human sacrifice. And the greatest of all human sacrifices was seen as the sacrifice of someone within your own family. And this, is, this idea in pagan culture is something called propitiation. It's this great word. It's also used in the New Testament multiple times. So we have two huge words today, justification, propitiation. And propitiation is when something is sacrificed in order that wrath or anger or punishment can be atoned for, right? 
Well, in the pagan culture, when you're talking about propitiation, the Bible steps in right away and says, this is absolutely not what we're supposed to be doing. This is absolutely not God's design for the world. This is not the basis of how we are justified, how we are made right with God. But the Bible does have some things to say about propitiation. And it doesn't say that we sacrifice something so that God will be happy with us. It says that God sacrificed something so that we can be happy in him. It takes this idea and flips it on the head. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, he says this. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, he uses this great word, and he's explaining the basis of justification. The same thing he's saying here in Galatians 2 and Paul. He's saying it in Romans uh, chapter 3, and he says this. God presented Christ as a propitiation, right? This atoning sacrifice through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins uncommitted or sins committed unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that, and catch this, so that God could be both just and the justifier. He could actually punish sin. He punished sin in his son Christ. And at the same time, he can declare us as the judge, he can declare us righteous because our sin was punished in someone else. It's this great language that's used in the midst of the Bible, this legal language of justification. That's how it's used in a legal sense. And I want you also to see how it's used in a sort of end of the life, end of the world sense. And here's how I want to illustrate this. If uh, I, at six o'clock a.m. on Friday mornings, there's a group of men at the church that meet upstairs in something called the fraternity. And so this year we were studying through this and and there was an illustration that was used uh, during that time that goes something like this. Um, and it says that uh, fire jumpers, right? Fire jumpers, those when there's these huge fires that are happening on the West Coast that are massive and can take out entire towns and cities are very destructive. There's people that get trained to go figure out how to stop those fires and how to redirect those fires uh, by, by all these different great means. And so when I was in college, one of my buddies wanted to be a fire jumper. And he thought, you know, during the summers, I want to go out and get trained to be a fire jumper. And so as we were looking into that, one of the things that we learned is that oftentimes when these fire jumpers get out into the middle of one of these storms and they're on one side of it, the winds can change drastically. And when the winds change, the fire moves from, you know, going in the eastward direction to going north all of a sudden. And if you're positioned in that place, you are absolutely toast. There is no way that you can outrun the strength of these fires. I mean, they're just, they're just massive. And so as they're coming and they're moving in this direction— these fire jumpers, they get training. And the training is that they carry with them some flammable product, and they immediately get that out. And where they are now, they don't try to outrun it. They start a fire on the ground. And as they do, they burn a circle that's onto the ground that's there, and then they stamp out the circle, and they actually lay down in the fire that they just did. So they, they burn this section of the ground. They lay down in that section of the ground. They take their little uh, heat, anti-heat blanket and lay it on top of them. If some of your firemen have done this, I apologize for the non-technical language. But here's the idea. The idea is that that which has already been burned cannot be burned again, right? And so their training says lay down where you are. Don't try to outrun it. You can't. Lay down in that which has already been burned, which is exactly what Paul is saying here, that as he's been crucified in Christ, he is laying down in the death of Jesus. Jesus, who has already absorbed the wrath of God, who has already taken on the punishment, 
We don't try to earn our way. We don't try to outrun the punishments that's coming. We lay down. We accept that Jesus has already done that on our behalf. And that is what Paul is getting at when he says you can be declared right. You can be justified before God. So first step is to embrace death. The basis of that is this language of justification. The last thing that does, it moves us into a new life in Christ, and it says that we have a new identity. So Galatians 2.20, we've said it twice already. I have been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. So the question for the Christian life of how do we live the Christian life is we live the Christian life in Christ, by faith, in Christ. We have this new identity in our Savior. Now, if you remember, I said when Galatians, when Paul's writing here in Galatians 2, he's angry at the Apostle Peter. He's mad at Peter because Peter forgets his identity. Peter forgets that he's already been approved by God. He's already been justified by God. And so he cowers in fear to these religious leaders who are coming. He's afraid of the religious leaders, and so he forgets who he is. He forgets that he's already been set free, and he goes back to his old boss underneath the law, and he tries to live according to the law for that moment in our life. And what happens to Peter is the exact same thing that happens to you and to me. If you've ever tried to live the Christian life, if you've tried to live set free, if you've tried to live like God has already declared you right and good, that you're a son and daughter, you sometimes forget who you are. You struggle. You forget what your new identity is. Uh, When I was working in the university setting for the last uh, decade, anytime somebody on my team or someone in our group uh, had a promotion, I would always buy them the same book. And I would get them this book called The First 90 Days. And a guy named Michael Watkins wrote this book, and he sold tons of copies of this thing. And it's great. I mean, he, he talks about how you build new stakeholders, and he talks about how to gain early wins, and how do you gain momentum as a new employee, and what do you do in the first 90 days to succeed in office. And one of the insights that he finds in this study is he says, there are some people, when they get this promotion, that they succeed. And, and they just take on their new job with strength and they move forward. And there's other people when they get a promotion that they really struggle. And it's like they were the best design art person, but when they moved from designing to actually being in charge of all the design work, they really struggled with that transition, right? They're the head of marketing and they're a killer marketing person, but when they became the CEO, they struggled and they didn't do well in the CEO seat. Why is that? And one of the reasons that is is because the person forgets to promote themselves. They continue to act like they're still the VP of marketing, not like they have the new rights and responsibilities and uh, new boss of who the CEO is. And so people forget to promote themselves. And I think what Watkins is doing in that insight is exactly what's happening in the New Testament and exactly what happens to us. Our new identity in Christ, we forget to live that way. We forget to live like we have a new identity. We forget to live like we have a new boss. Um, If you have ever uh, struggled with this, uh, you know that sometimes you can uh, quickly live a certain way and you can kind of have some... um, have some early wins, if you will, in the Christian life, and then all of a sudden you take three steps back. You're like, oh my goodness, just life is not working again. I'm living like I used, who I used to be. I'm not living like who God says I am in this way. And one of the reasons that that's so hard is because when God says we have a new identity, he also says we have a whole lot of hard work to do in the midst of that. Um, the hardest work is actually just to believe and live this way. Uh, but then we have these Romans chapter 7 talks about these sinful tendencies in who we are, the old man and the new man. And we live like we're the old man, not the new man anymore. So uh, just a few days ago, our neighbor two doors down um, had not cut his grass yet, right? All season, he just hadn't cut his grass. So the grass is growing up like crazy. And the guy's got 30,000 dandelions in his front yard. Um, that's an exaggeration. But he's got a ton of dandelions. 
And our, our kids are, are, are with these things, and I'm just like mad because I know that those little puff balls are going to float over to my yard and get in my yard, and I'm digging mine up. Like, you know, I got the shovel out. I'm doing the hard work to get it out by the root. And, but yesterday, somebody came, or two days ago, somebody came and mowed their grass. And my kid said, look, they got rid of all their weeds. And I said, I was like, oh, no, they didn't get rid of all their weeds. <laughs> all they did was trim the top of their weeds so it appears like the weeds are gone, right? But if I take my daughter over there and say, hey, look, here's the dandelion, here's the dandelion, here's the dandelion, like, here they are. They don't have the little yellow tops right now because they got mowed off. But they didn't really do the hard work to remove those things out of their life. Well, our new life in Christ is actually the same way. Most of us would prefer just to mow the grass on top, just to do the, <laughs> just what's easiest to make it look like those things are not in our life, instead of do the really hard work of asking the questions underneath, the root question, what is it that's driving me to act this way? Why am I referring back to this old pattern of my life? Why is it that I find myself doing these things over and over? And the only way to pull the root out, the only way to go back and do the work underneath the work is to go back to step number one is to embrace death, to embrace the death of Jesus. And when we do that, the Spirit of God gives us power to find life. If, uh, if you have seen, um, if you've seen the series Band of Brothers, it's a series that I really liked, World War II series, and there's, uh, there's a great scene in the middle of this um, that goes like this, and there's a private named Blythe, and Blythe hears something, so he jumps out in the woods, and as he's walking out in the woods, he runs into a captain from another platoon, and they have this interchange. And as they had this interchange, the first time I heard it, I thought to myself, oh man, that is really good. That is, that's an insight. And I'm not a war guy, I'm not a military guy, so I have no instincts on that side, but I think it helps understand actually what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2 and 3. So I want to read it for you. I want to read this exchange. So the captain uh, looks at this private, and he says, hey, you got some nervous privates in your, in your company, don't you? And Blythe says, we do, sir. We, we, we do. I can vouch for that. And then the captain says, uh, they just don't see how simple it is. And Blythe says, simple what is, sir? And the captain says, just do what you have to do. And Blythe says, you mean like you did in D-Day, sir? And he makes the captain mad. So the captain's about to leave. And he says, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. So he comes back, and Blythe then confesses. And this is what he says. He says, Lieutenant, sir, when I landed on D-Day... I found myself in a ditch all by myself. I fell asleep. I, I, think it was, I, I think it was the air sickness pill, sir. But when I woke up, I didn't really try to find my company. I didn't really try to fight. I just kind of stayed there. I stayed put. And the captain looks at him. He says, what's your name, sir? And Blythe says, I'm Blythe, Albert Blythe. And then he says, you know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? And Blythe says, because I was scared. And the captain says, we're all scared, but you hid in that ditch because you still think there's hope. Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And that sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function like a soldier. Because all war depends on that. Now again, I don't know if that's good advice in the military, but I know that's really good advice in life. Because what Paul is saying is that you can't justify yourself. You cannot find a way, no matter what you do, to make yourself right with God. The only way to do that is to see that God has made us right with him by accepting the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then living into our new identity. 
our new identity where God calls us sons and daughters, where we receive all the inheritance that God has given to Jesus, all the righteousness that Christ is ours, and all the inheritance that's coming to Christ is ours. We will rule and reign with God for all of eternity, according to the New Testament. That's what he says it means to be a son and daughter, not just people that are forgiven from something, but living life both now and for eternity as children of a loving God. There's a great hymn that wraps this up, and I want to close with this. It says, these are, actually, it was a hymn that was given to me by a church member that when we were looking at Galatians, they said, hey, this hymn really captures a lot of the themes that we're doing. And so I had been reading it the last uh, few weeks, and so I want to close uh, by reading this today. And it says this. Here's the words of the hymn writer. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. And verse 2 says this, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease the weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can make, give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, can rid... Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of the dark unrest and set my spirit free. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for great words uh, that are captured in hymns like this uh, that tell us that we can live a life that's truly set free. We can live a life that's set free in a new identity that you've given us as children of God based on your work, your justifying work that we can be declared right by embracing the death of your son Christ and being given new life. God, I pray this morning for those in this room that uh, have not taken a step to, to really deal with Uh, with you in that way to um, embrace the death of Christ and not trust in himself but to trust in Christ that Father that you would work in their lives and their heart for those that have taken that step and and are struggling or living in doubt or don't have assurance of their faith I pray the objective work of Christ's death and resurrection your declaration of righteousness would be something that comforts them today and for those of us all of us who struggle with living the Christian life living into our new identity promoting ourselves if you will uh, God help us today to and not try to do that on our own, but to start back at step one and to embrace the fact that you are the one who is working in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.